Our text this morning is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord that is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask that you would attend upon your word, that your spirit would convict us of sin, encourage us to love and good deeds, and would show us more of the glory and magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Do you have a certain way of introducing yourself, describing yourself to someone? Perhaps you'll say, I'm from Texas. You know, everything's bigger in Texas. When I lived in Mississippi, people would say, I'm from the South. Sometimes you need to do that to help people along. If you can imagine it, it may be a stretch, but when we lived for three years in Mississippi, I had to describe myself to people as a Yankee, just so that they would know. I often describe myself right away as being Italian, because if I don't, people get that after about ten seconds of me talking with my hands. You see, we need to know who we are, and we do that partly at least by describing ourselves. But oftentimes we can describe ourselves in a flawed way. We can either think too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves. We're not perfect in our assessment. But you see, the great thing about the church, the people of God, is that it's God who describes us. And his description is perfect. It's accurate. It's helpful. It's encouraging. And that's what Peter is doing here this morning by God's Holy Spirit. He is telling his flock who they are. This would be the end of a section in the letter. I know that we have chapters and verse divisions, so you can't see it. But if you can imagine in your mind's eye, almost like when you send an email to someone and there's that large gray line that marks off certain spots... Think of a large gray line here, right at the end of verse 10. Peter is culminating in describing who the people of God are. 
And part of that is describing what God has done for them. And so, what Peter is going to do, not surprisingly, if he wants us to know who we are, he's going to begin where? He's going to begin with who Jesus is. Because we are called to be like Jesus. We are being fashioned into his image. So he begins with describing what we call here the chosen stone, the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves seamlessly in describing the chosen people, the church of Jesus Christ. And then by means of encouragement and exhortation, he then describes for us the chosen purpose of God in the existence of the people of God. A chosen stone, a chosen people, and a chosen purpose. Well, he begins speaking about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Who is this Jesus? Well, Peter describes Jesus by way of his relationship to others, what he means to other people. And he starts with his relationship to men, his relationship to the world. And he begins here in verse 4, and he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. The first thing that he describes Jesus as, as a stone that is living. Now, what does that mean? It may seem simple, but I think there are basically two main thoughts that Peter is getting across here. If something is living, the first thing is that it is alive. It's not dead. It's animated. So our Lord Jesus Christ is the living stone. But there's more than that, too, because Jesus is one who makes others alive. You see, his life is contagious. It is infectious. Jesus is alive because he is free. He is free from all others. You see, we are dependent. We're dependent on our circumstances, dependent on oxygen to breathe, dependent on food and water, dependent upon God for our very existence. But not so the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not just that I am alive, not just that I partake of something that makes me alive, but I am life itself. All life flows from me. Jesus says. This is important for us in everyday life. Because Jesus is, as the catechism question says, the only true and living God. There is no other living God. There are many other small g gods. Money. Security. Children. Spouses. Politics. But they're all idols. They're all vain. They're all dead. Isaiah says that they don't speak. They don't hear. They don't know. Only Jesus is alive. Only he can make others alive. He is the one who gives all life. That's why he says in John 11, He who believes in me will never die, because I am life itself. I am the living stone, Jesus says. We might think of many illustrations to describe this, but I think the best one is found in the pages of Scripture itself. Jesus goes back to a town by the name of Bethany, and he meets some friends of his, two ladies, 
Mary and Martha. And their brother named Lazarus has just died. And life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to Bethany. And he says, roll the stone away. And Lazarus is what you call really dead. He's not just mostly dead. He's so dead that his sister says, no, Lord, he stinks. He's been dead so long. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living one, by the power of his word, says what? Lazarus, come forth. And death cannot hold Lazarus. He rises up in grave clothes and all. And he is made alive by the power of the living stone. This is who Jesus is. But Jesus is also described with respect to other men because he reveals the true heart of man. Because he's not just a living stone, Peter says. He is a living stone that is rejected by men. If you think about that, that's the story of history, isn't it? It begins in Jesus' own lifetime when God's people themselves reject him. They reject him as a prophet in Nazareth. They reject him as a Messiah and they have him crucified. They reject him throughout history. People want no part of the powerful living God. They like a nice, helpful teacher who's kind of like Buddha or Gandhi. But they don't like the powerful living God. They want no part of him. And so they reject him. And this rejection shows itself in their disobedience. For we see down here at verse 8 that those who reject him stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. They disobey the gospel of God. You see, the people who are faced with the gospel of life, who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, don't want any part of him, are destined to do so by the Lord himself. You see, only by being born again by the power of God, as we saw in chapter 1, can anyone hope to accept the gospel. You see, this passage that we see here in verse 8 and 7, that comes from Isaiah 28, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, comes in the context of the Lord chastising Israel for rebellion. You see, it is the ordinary course of man to rebel against God and Jesus. It takes a supernatural intervention by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God to break that chain. There is a chain here. There is a a destiny that leads to disobedience, that leads to rejection. You see this all the time, don't you? You see it in communities, your neighborhood, your job, your schools, where people live lives of misery and pain. And yet they still thrust away from themselves the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus reveals the true heart of man in those who reject him. But Jesus doesn't just relate to men. He also relates to God himself. You see, the Bible is not a source of lack of encouragement. The Bible doesn't just share with us hard truths. There is a little word that occurs over and over again in the Bible for our comfort. It's the word, but. 
Every time we look and see how difficult life is, the Bible puts a but in there. And we see it here that Jesus is the living stone. He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is precious and chosen. You see, as Jesus relates to his Father, he is valued. In the sight of God, he is chosen and elect. It is the same thing that we saw in chapter 1, verse 20. He has been chosen for this purpose by the Lord himself. And he is precious. He is valuable. He has a price on his head. A price beyond compare. He is valuable to the Lord. That has application for us, Christians. And that is the question that comes here. Is Jesus valuable to you? I pray it's so. Are you looking forward to heaven? You see, oftentimes we have a a warped view of heaven. If our view today of what is good to do is to sit in an easy chair with a lemonade and a cool breeze, we sort of picture heaven being that way. If what we enjoy to do is to go around and see all of our friends and be from place to place, we sort of imagine that heaven's that way. There's even a bad theology that's going around. Those who think money is great and important, they think heaven is a place of great money. It's not just that the streets are paved with gold. It's that I'll have everything I could ever want. But you see, that's not what heaven is like. Heaven is the place where Jesus is. So if you don't love Jesus Christ, if Jesus isn't precious to you, if I can say this so boldly, You won't enjoy heaven. Because heaven is all about Jesus. You see, that is the value that Jesus Christ has to God. He is precious in and of himself. And God sees this value in the Lord Jesus Christ because of who he is and the purpose that the Lord has sent him for. He lays the foundation for his very kingdom in Jesus Christ. Do you notice what... It said here in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Some of your Bibles may have a margin note that shows that this passage here is a citation from the Old Testament. Peter is very fond of using Old Testament quotes. He quotes at least three sections here in our little passage. He quotes from the Psalms, he quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes from Hosea. But Peter does something a little bit interesting here. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek. And so there's a perfectly good Greek word that's used in that translation for lay. It means to put down, like, I lay that cup of water down. But you see, Peter strengthens this language. That word for lay that he uses is the same word that the Bible uses for the word appoint. I put down with a purpose. I set in place. You see, that is what God is doing. God is laying the foundation for everything that he will do in Jesus Christ. So that has application to you and me. Because if the desire of your heart is to have a marriage that is full of love, fervency, and support, you must begin with Jesus. 
Because Jesus is the foundation for all that is good in the world. If your desire is to be a person of use, helping others, using your talents to the greatest ability, you must begin with Jesus. Because he is the foundation for everything that God will do. God has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus also has, finally here, a relationship to his people. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. You see, Jesus Christ is in relationship with his people from all eternity. That's why Peter tells this flock of his, as you come to him, as you draw near to this Jesus, draw near to him, be close to him, rely upon him. That's Peter's prayer for these pilgrims. It's Peter's prayer for you and for me as well. And Peter is again here using the Old Testament in a very pointed way. We miss it here again if we don't have margin notes. This, as you come to him, a living stone. The him in the Old Testament citation is the Lord. And so what Jesus, or excuse me, what Peter is doing is, he is equating Jesus and the Lord God. He is making it clear that Jesus is God. He is the Lord. He is the one that calls to him everyone who is weary and heavy laden. He is the one who issues the call in Isaiah 53, come to me. This is the one that we are to draw near to. And as we draw near to him, we see that we derive our very being from him. Do you notice the parallels that Peter uses? He calls Jesus the living stone. And then what does he call the people of God? Living stones. Do you notice that? He says that Jesus is precious to God. And then do you see what he says in verse 7? So the honor or the value or the preciousness, same word, is to you who believe. In, in simple language, it means that Jesus makes his people like him. He is valuable, so you are valuable. He is precious to the Lord, so you are precious to the Lord. He lives, so you live. That, my friends, is the gospel. Being united to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be like him. And this is the opposite of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, and who are nothing like him. You see, this honor comes to those, verse 7, who believe. Peter is emphasizing the fact that we must have faith in Jesus in order to be like him. Peter doesn't say, as some modern theologians would say, so the honor is to those who have been baptized. So the honor is to those who tithe well. So the honor is to those who are super-duper prayers. No. He says the honor is to those who believe. If you want to be like Jesus, you must have faith in Jesus. 
It all begins there. If you have not placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter now exhorts you. He calls upon you. He commands you to believe in Jesus. There is no life without Him. There is no purpose without Him. There is no value without Him. The honor is to those who believe. Well, we see then that this is who Jesus is, but how do we then get to who we are from there? Well, some of you may have had opportunities to either watch or to see reruns of old movies, especially when they build skyscrapers. Maybe an old newsreel footage of when the Empire State Building was built. And they have that funny music that comes on and the flickering, and they show this big, huge stone with a crane, and they lay it down, and they talk about, this is the cornerstone of the Empire State Building. This will be so tall, etc. Why do they make such a big deal out of the cornerstone? I'm sure you can go to downtown Houston, and you can go and you'll find at the corner of one of these tall buildings a stone that looks like a different color, usually with a year carved in it, right? Why? It's because the cornerstone is the foundation, the support, the beginning of that building. And so it is with the building that is the church. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is our beginning. Jesus is our fountain. And so we get from who Jesus is to who we are very easily. We see that, first of all, we are a new people in Jesus Christ. We are being built up as a spiritual house. The New Testament talks about it this way. It says, do you remember back in the Old Testament, there was this thing called the temple, and it was beautiful, and it was glorious? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you are the temple. Of the living God. But you see, there's a problem here. This is one of these occasions where we really need to have the King James. Or at least we need to live in the South. Because you see, when Paul says, You are the temple of God, oftentimes we make a jump and we say, I am the temple of God. Therefore, I must honor the Holy Spirit with his temple. So I shouldn't eat too much at McDonald's because you don't want to make the Holy Spirit's temple unfit. I shouldn't smoke. I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. But you see, Paul doesn't say, You are the temple of God. Paul says, Y'all are the temple of God. He's talking about the church. He says, you are a spiritual house. You are God's building. You are the new temple. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The author of Hebrews puts it a little bit different. He says that Jesus is our elder brother. We are a part of that temple, that great renewed temple. A spiritual house. But we're also a chosen race, Peter says. Look down at verse 9. He fires off many of these descriptions, these adjectives. And these adjectives are steeped in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you put your finger here and flip back to the book of Exodus and go a few chapters past where Neil read, in Exodus 19, verse 5, it's almost verbatim. There's a reason why we're reading the book of Exodus as we're going through 1 Peter. It's because Peter is constantly drawing on themes in Exodus. You see, he says, You are a chosen race, a people of God's choice. 
Just as Israel was chosen by God, so you are now chosen by God. And so that tells us two things. The first thing is that the church is of extreme value to God. Because He has chosen it. But it also tells us that we are the people of God not because of anything we did. Why did God choose Israel? Does God say to Moses, I have chosen Israel because they were the most numerous of people? No. He actually says it's because they're the least of people. Maybe he chose Israel because they were the most faithful of people. No. As we get through more of Exodus, you're going to see they're among the least faithful of people. God does a miracle right before them. Two or three minutes go by, they believe God can't do anything. God parts the Red Sea, they get on the other side and they're complaining, well, he could part the Red Sea, but he can't give us water. No. You see, the value that we have and the choice that God makes of his people is because of his own good pleasure, Paul says in Ephesians. This is a constant reminder of our value. Our value is dependent upon God. This fact that we are a new people gives us a new identity. Because we are not just a chosen people, a chosen race. We are also a royal priesthood, in verse 9. And up earlier, a holy priesthood. We have a new identity. Exodus 19 says it just a little bit different. He says, you are a kingdom of priests. And Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. Because really what Peter's trying to do here is capture two ideas. The first is that you are priests of the king. You are a kingdom of priests. You serve the king in that aspect. But there's another aspect too. It's not just that we are a kingdom of priests. We are kingly priests. Why? Do I have a pretty big opinion of myself? Saying that I'm kingly? No. I'm kingly only because I'm descended from a king. I'm descended from the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you too are in a royal line. You have been translated from death into life. And are a part of the royal kingdom. But we're not just a royal priesthood. We're a holy priesthood as well. Because we don't just sit around on comfortable couches saying how royal and good we are. No, we are called to serve. We're called to serve the one who gives us life and who gave his life for us. What are we called to do? We are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, we might stop and think there for a minute. What does that mean? Does that mean I have to think of really spiritual things to do? I need to pray a certain way with a certain mindset. Or I need to find something really sacrificial. I need to find something that I really don't like doing and do it. You know, it's like sometimes children do this in order to impress their parents. They'll steal themselves up. And they'll eat some of the food that everybody knows they just can't stand. And then they'll look at mom and dad and go, see, I did it just for you. Thinking that's somehow a step above something normal to do. 
And as Christians, we could be tempted to do that. We try and find that step above. We even joke about it. Oh, I would hate to live overseas. Well, maybe the Lord's sending me to do missions in Africa. Because I hate that. No. What Peter is getting at here is the exact same thing, I believe, that Paul says in Romans 12. You remember that famous passage? Where Paul says that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to offer up our bodies, our very selves, our spiritual service, our spiritual worship to God. You see, what God wants from you as a holy priest is not the things that you can do. He wants you. All of you. He doesn't just want some of the things that are an activity in your life. He wants your very being. You are His. You are His servant. And we're not just a holy priesthood, we're also a holy nation, set apart by God, just as Israel was. Set apart for a very purpose, to be a byword to the nations, to be the place where people see the work of God. A royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. And Peter closes here with this interesting phrase, a people for his own possession. You see, we are described as the people of God, as a people that God possesses, that God wants. The background for this is Deuteronomy chapter 14. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Malachi chapter 3 describes the people of God as jewels that God is polishing, perfecting, a special treasure. Now, lest again we get a little bit full of ourselves and think that we're so much better than others because we're the special possession of God. I was thinking about this this past week and I thought that maybe a good example of this would be something like baseball cards. Has anyone here ever collected baseball cards? I mean, if maybe those of you that grew up north collected hockey cards or bas- basketball cards in other places. But baseball cards, you know what they were like when you were a kid. Maybe you had some, maybe your brother or your father had some. You know what you did with those, right? You got a bunch of baseball cards, Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, and you took them and you got a big rubber band and you tied the rubber band around them tight and then you tossed them in the corner, Right? Is that what you do with baseball cards? No. If you're a baseball card collector, what do you do? You buy these special laminated pouch sheets that you slip the cards in and out of very carefully. And you don't let other people touch them outside the sheets. And they have holes for three ring binders and you put them in the three ring binders and you store them very neatly in a dry place. Right? Not in the basement. Not out in the garage. Why? Is it because a piece of cardboard with a picture of Mickey Mantle on it is inherently valuable? No. But is a Mickey Mantle rookie card valuable? If you don't think it is, you could drop one off with me on your way out. Why is it valuable? It's only valuable because of the value that, what? Others put on it. It's nothing in and of itself. It's a piece of paper. It's valuable because of what others put, the value that others put on it. 
That's what it is for the Christian. You as a Christian have unbelievable value, infinite worth, because of the value that God puts on you. Because he looks at you and he says, you are my special treasure. You ever do that with your kids? You're my special treasure. That's the value that the Lord puts on his people. This is the people of God. We've seen who Jesus is, and we've seen who the people of God are because of who Jesus is. But there's a reason why God puts us together, as it were. Why he gives us Jesus. It's because he has a chosen purpose in mind. We see that in verses 5 and verses 9. The first purpose that we see is that we are to serve the Lord. Look what he says in verse 5. We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, our analogy with the Exodus is very appropriate. We've been reading through the beginning of Exodus. Do you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? He said, let my people go that they, what? Might serve me. They're not just to be free for freedom's sake. It's not that God has written a good uh, white paper on democracy. No. It's that God wants a people to serve him. And so he redeems them for service. And so it is with us, isn't it? We are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ that we might serve the living God. That we might be his hands and his feet in the world. And it's no wonder then that Exodus 19, where Peter takes this passage from about describing who the people of God are, occurs in the context of a warning about obedience. He says, you have to obey because you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. It's not a surprise that the text that Peter quotes in verse 10 from Hosea, that you were once not a people, now you are a people, is in the context of Hosea warning Israel not to rebel against God, but to be obedient. We are called to serve the Lord. We see also here in verse 9 that we are not just called to serve the Lord, we are called to praise the Lord. And that means more than singing a certain song or having a certain body posture on Sunday morning. It means all of our lives are to be laid out as a praise offering to God. It means all of our life is for God's glory. You might think of it this way. I would encourage you, and I would ask you to encourage me, that if you ever have opportunity to help someone, to be of assistance, maybe you bring a meal, maybe you teach a class, maybe you uh, design something, for someone in the church. And you're kind of waiting around for the thank you. And it doesn't come. And you know what comes next. If you're like me, and we're human, there's a period, maybe it's five seconds, maybe it's a couple of hours, in which you're a little bit annoyed that the person didn't recognize that service. I would say to you, Christian, Beloved, that you need to repent of that. And I need to repent of that. 
Because we are called to serve God for God's glory, not our own. Not for thanks, but for the glory of God. We are called to tell the story of the Lord. Not the story of Fred, or John, or Bob, or Billy. Have you ever noticed that in testimonies? Sometimes in the modern American church, a testimony goes something like this. Well, I was once in sin, and I recognized my need, and I had to go to the Lord, and I had faith in the Lord, and now I'm turning my life around, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm. Whereas the Bible, Paul, for example, has a little bit of a different perspective. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I was lost and dead in sin. I was without hope. I was in darkness. But God who is rich in mercy, saved me. You see where the emphasis is? It's on God. Paul's constantly saying, don't look at Paul, he's a worm. Look at Jesus. Is that the kind of church that we want to be? Do we want to be the church where people come and visit and say, that's the church with the wonderful music. That's the church with the people that really pitch in. That's the church with the fine elders and deacons. That's the church with the great Bible studies. I want all of those things. But I want people to see them and say, that's the church where they love Jesus. That's the church where God's glory is seen. That's the purpose. And the final purpose that we have in serving the Lord and praising the Lord, is to proclaim the Lord. Do you see that in verse 9? We are a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is an occasion where I can't even tell you what Peter is quoting from the Old Testament, because it occurs like 15 times in the Psalms. We are called all the time to proclaim the excellencies, to tell of his wondrous deeds, to tell of his mighty, marvelous works. That's what Peter's saying. That's your purpose as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim Jesus to a watching world and to each other, to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim his resurrection, to proclaim that he is coming again. He's coming. That is not just around a first Sunday in spring. All of our days should be filled with proclaiming that Jesus is coming back. He is risen and he is coming back. And to proclaim the salvation of his people. Do you notice what Peter does here? He links proclaiming the excellencies of God with the work that God has done in calling us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what we're called to be. That is our chosen purpose. That is the purpose that God has fashioned, prepared, and put on a platter in front of you. It is why He has chosen the Lord Jesus Christ. It is why He has chosen a people Because he has a purpose that he is working out in history. And what a wonderful, marvelous thing that a group of old, ordinary folks like you and me are part of that kind of purpose. How can you be depressed about yourself 
or be discouraged about your worth in the world when you know that you are so valued by God and that God has such great things in store for you. Peter is using this specifically to encourage people going through a rough time. So if you're going through a rough time, listen to Peter. Look to the chosen stone of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and realize that you are a part of God's chosen people and that you have a chosen and designed purpose. That is what life is about. And everything else melts away in front of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray even now, Lord, that you would impress upon us the value that we have as your people because of what Jesus has done. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.